You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, this morning and this evening, we will be looking at verses 26 through 33, but I want us to read beginning at the 24th verse, Matthew chapter 10, and we read beginning at verse 24. Our Lord said this, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness... Speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for an Assyrian? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Let's go together to our God in prayer and ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, we do now ask for Your blessing upon the word that we've just read, Your very words, upon the time now that we have to proclaim them, to explain them, to apply them. We can't do this, Lord, without You. So we ask for Your power to be at work in this next hour, in this place, in our lives as we encounter Scripture. May the Holy Spirit of God be our teacher. May His sword go deep into our hearts, accomplishing everything you've ordained for your church to experience when we encounter your Word. We need encouragement. We need correction. We need preparation for this day and the days ahead. And at the same time as your church is being washed by the pure water of the Word of God, Lord, we know there are people hearing me who don't know you. We've heard testimonies of people powerfully saved by you, even this morning in the baptistry. And Lord, we long for for more of that to occur, to hear more and more lives rescued, redeemed, transformed by your Son. So, Lord, would you, would you save today, even as your word goes forth? We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
What does persecution aim at? What does persecution aim at? The enemies of Christ, the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of the church, threaten the church, attack the church, mock the church, inflict harm upon the church. But why? What is persecution aiming at? Someone might say, well, what it aims at really is murder, martyrdom, elimination. And and there's no doubt that the one who inspires persecution, the devil himself, is a murderer, was from the beginning. And if he had his way, the church of Jesus Christ would just be wiped off the map. That's true. But from the standpoint of the motivations of of the instruments, the people who persecute the Lord's church... The aim is not always elimination. It's not always martyrdom. Not everyone who hates the church wants to kill its members. But what persecution always aims at is intimidation. That is always present in the motivations of those who would persecute the church. If you ask, what are they hoping to accomplish? What is motivating Their behavior, their words, their attitudes, the answer will always include intimidation. The value of persecution from the standpoint of the persecutor is it generates fear. If you don't want to be in trouble, if you don't want to lose your reputation, if you don't want to lose your freedom, if you don't want to lose your relationships, if you don't want to lose your ability to supply for yourself and your family financially, if you want to live in peace, then whatever you're doing in the name of Jesus that bothers us must stop. And if you don't stop it, you're going to experience something you dread. The power of persecution is that it accesses our fears. Our Lord has given His disciples their marching orders for a ministry mission. He informed their expectations by telling them in advance they're going to meet with opposition. And in explaining that, He doesn't just look to this immediate mission, but He looks through the you know, down through the quarters of time, the, the, the age including the time we're living in right now, and He makes clear this will always be the case for His people where they faithfully execute their mission, where they faithfully proclaim His Word, they're going to meet with opposition. Sometimes, in fact, to the, down to the nearest and dearest relationships of their lives, their own families. And now after telling His disciples that, and by extension telling us that, He addresses what He knows will be one of our greatest areas of vulnerability, one of our greatest areas of temptation. That is the temptation to be afraid. Knowing that we will certainly come under attack. Notice the first word in verse 26 is the word, therefore. Looks back to the previous two verses. A disciple is not above his teacher. A slave is not above his master. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebul, what are they going to call you? Therefore. 
because you will certainly come under attack, you've got to know with certainty what your temptation might be, and you have to know how to address that temptation. Do not fear them. This is the temptation. What follows is the truth that answers that temptation. So in our verses today, both this morning and this evening, we're going to be thinking about fear rightly focused. Fear rightly focused. If you look at verse 28, it says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear men, fear God. So have your fears rightly focused. And today we're going to think about five things we must do if our fear is to be rightly focused. Five things the Lord gives us that we must do if our fear is to be rightly focused. We'll look at the first two things we must do this morning. Tonight we'll come back and look at the final three. Five things we must do to have our fear rightly focused. The first thing is this. We see it in verse 26. If we're to have our fear rightly focused, then we must believe Christ regarding future illumination. Illumination, right? Something is going to be brought into the light. If our fear is to be rightly focused, we must believe Jesus about future illumination. Verse 26 says, Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed. There's nothing hidden that will not be known. I want you to notice this is an imperative. It's a command when he says, therefore, do not fear them. We are commanded as the people of God not to fear the persecutors, those who would persecute us. For, because, here's how it is that you don't fear them, you've got to know something, that there's nothing Calypto's the word, hidden, concealed, kept secret. There's nothing calypto that will not be apocalypto, that will not be revealed. There is nothing hidden, kryptos. The word means unknown because of being kept secret. Again, there's the idea of covering. There's a secrecy to it. Nothing unknown that will not be gnosko, known. Everything's going to be brought into the light. There's a future day when everything will be brought into the light. It's a twofold unveiling. There's an unveiling that's going to occur that says something about righteousness. And there's an unveiling that's going to occur that will say something about unrighteousness. And in that unveiling, all sorts of things that have to do with sin and have to do with righteousness will be seen for the first time in absolute clarity. Words that have been spoken. I mean, this this is the unveiling down to the level of words. Motives. We'll talk about an unveiling. What's going on in the hearts of people? Motives unveiled. Confederacies. Secret arrangements, people teaming up with one another to do whatever it is they do in the realm of unrighteousness. 
or friendship in the interest of righteousness, schemes. The absolute truth will be revealed. That day's coming. The Apostle Paul writes concerning people who were criticizing him in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he would not be dissuaded by the criticism. He would not be taken off track by what people said. Here's how he withstood that. Listen to what he writes, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3. He says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. That sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? The Lord is coming. When He comes, everything's going to be revealed down to the purposes that existed in your heart. But you notice something in that text. This is actually an encouraging word because the next verse says this, then each one will receive his commendation from God. He's talking about the judgment of believers. When the Lord Jesus will be giving rewards. This is why Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I'm not even the, 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 the final judge of my own motives or my own successes or failures. The Lord judges me. And one day he's going to come and reward all of his children. And for something to be rewardable, I had to be right, even in terms of what motivated me. I mean, if it's truly rewardable, then my motives were good. And so when he comes to give our rewards, he's going to take into account even what was going on in our hearts, what, why we did what we did. So for you to judge me now becomes really small. Because you're not the one to reward me one day. You're not the one who will determine that I lost reward one day. So what really concerns me is not what you think of me, but what Jesus knows of me, you see. 1 Timothy 5.24, the apostle writes this, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment but the sins of others appear later. Some people's sins are right out there in the wide open. Everybody can see them. Before the judgment day, they are apparent. Now he's, he's talking about a different kind of judgment, not the judgment of believers, but the judgment of the world. And he says, he says there are some people's sins that everybody sees it right now, but there are others that will be revealed later. And then he turns his attention in the next verse to the judgment of God's people when he says, so also good works are conspicuous and even those that are, not, that are not cannot remain hidden. So in the realm of godly people, there are things that everybody sees that you go, that, that is a blessing to me. That is good according to Scripture. But there are things that people do that are good 
and godly and God-honoring and helpful and a blessing to other people that no one ever sees and no one ever knows about until the day, until the day when everything is illuminated and on that day even the secret good works will be plain for everyone to see. Doesn't this help the purity of your motivations to know that everybody doesn't have to know what you've done right now? The Lord one day will recognize whatever it is that you've done that's good. No one has to applaud it. No one has to see it. No one has to comment on it. No one has to reward you because one day the Lord Jesus will reward whatever is rewardable. And you're going to make a big mistake and you're going to actually, in all likelihood, commit sin when you start trying to make that evaluation about your own deeds. Remember, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. We're in a bad place when we begin doing math in our own minds about our deeds. That was a good one. (laughs) That'll be rewarded one day. Just wait. No one knows about it yet. You're going to be disappointed, I'm afraid, if that's your attitude about it. So one day, a day is coming when everything is illuminated and the truth will be established, both with respect to sin and with respect to righteousness. In fact, one day, everyone's true, this is the most fundamental issue of all, everyone's true relationship to God is going to be made clear. We gather today as the Lord's church, most, if not everyone in this room, professes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. But do you really know him? Does he know you? One day, that no one's going to wonder anymore. It's going to be clear, manifest, unmistakable. Romans 8, 19 tells us the whole creation waits for that day. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. One day, who those people are that are the sons and daughters of God, it is going to be revealed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. No one's going to have any any reason to wonder. I exhort anyone in this room who holds on to the perception that you're a believer when down deep in your heart you know that you're not a believer, you've not experienced the new birth, you're not a new creation, but you hold on to it because of what everybody might think if you admitted that you're lost. Please throw away that kind of fear of people. Because one day when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, all that will matter is that you really know Him. And you're known by Him. So the great day of illumination encompasses every kind of judgment. The judgment that condemns, the judgment that commends. Everything in the light. And on that day, righteousness will be enthroned. And wickedness will be punished. Talk about a great reversal. We live in a world right now where everything has been turned upside down. In this world of fallen humanity, we're not talking now about the sovereignty of God over everything. He's on his throne. He reigns always. But in this world under a curse, in this world of fallen humanity, it is 
most often the case that sin is in the places of high authority and righteousness is being oppressed, crushed under its feet. But when this day of future illumination comes, that's going to be reversed. The powerful who are wicked, the influencers who are wicked, those who thought themselves favored because of their riches, those who have mocked the Lord's truth and mocked the Lord's people, mocked our hope. Every single human being will watch as the saints of God inherit the earth. See, this is the promise that the meek will inherit the earth. In fact, the people whom this world has said, you don't deserve our acceptance, will, with the Lord Jesus Christ, judge the world. Did you know that it's your role in the future one day to be a part of a judgment of the world? Luke chapter 6, verse 20 says this, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. I mean, your, your name comes up and their eyes roll. Your name comes up and there's this attitude of, you know, they despise you and they can't hide it. They spurn your name as evil on account, here's the key, on account of the Son of Man. Because you are associated with Jesus, you see. Our Lord says this, verse 23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. When do you want your good things? When do you want your reward? Do you want want something that's merely temporal? But you're on top of the world right now. Or do you want everlasting blessing in union with the Son of God. 1 Corinthians 6.2, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Riding there to a church where they're, they're acting like lost people, suing each other in court, taking each other into the, into the public courts to, to settle disputes instead of settling those disputes in the church. And Paul The Spirit of God through Paul rebuking these people. Don't you know your identity? Don't you know that one day the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Settle your disputes among yourselves. Why are you taking it into the courts? Don't you know what your future role will be when the saints inherit the earth? How do you get your fear rightly focused? Not not fearing men, but fearing God. You do that as you remember this future day of illumination, a future day of justice, when everything that's hidden now, that's concealed now, will be brought into the light 
And every fact will be established by the Son of God, both on the side of those condemned and on the side of those commended, both with respect to sin and with respect to righteousness. Everything brought out into the wide open, everything into the light. You say, well, how will that help my fear? Well, here's the question. Why would you fear people who will one day be proven to be fools? Why are you intimidated by them? Even worse, read Psalm 73 where the psalmist admits there was a time he envied the wicked. He sees how easy their life is. He sees how they don't suffer many of the things that God's people suffer. And he found himself growing bitter about that and envying them, he says, until he came into the sanctuary of God and then he perceived their end. And he saw what slippery ground they stand on and how in a moment they they move into eternity. And as soon as they move from the temporal to the eternal, everything changes. Why would you envy them? Why would you be intimidated by them? When one day they're proven to be fools, why would you care for their acceptance? Why are you striving so hard to have their acceptance and their approval? Don't you see the end? Why would you be ashamed of the truth? Why would you be ashamed of the one who is the truth, who brought you into the truth? Why would you be ashamed of the position in which now you stand by the grace of God? You're a child of God. You have the truth of Scripture. You have the gospel. Why would you be ashamed of the gospel? Why would you be ashamed of the pathway that the Word of God leads us to walk in? Why would you be ashamed of this? You see, you overcome fear by remembering the ultimate outcome of everything. The second way that our fear is rightly focused, you see in verse 27, our Lord says this, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. We overcome fear by remembering a future day of illumination. We also overcome the fear of man. We have our fear rightly focused when we obey Christ regarding present illumination. Present illumination. That is, there is something we've been given that is illumination. It is light. And we have a present responsibility, a command from God to shine that light. Christ's words. He's given them to his disciples. You see that in verse 27. What I tell you, Jesus says, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear, whispered in your ear, proclaim, herald, Caruso, herald, Proclaim, preach upon the housetops. That day, the flat rooftops became a, it would be a place to make a public pronouncement that everyone could see you and hear you. What is our Lord saying? He's saying, not only must you refuse to be intimidated, you must refuse to be silenced. What does persecution aim at? It aims at accessing your fears. It aims at intimidating you. And the reason why Satan wants to intimidate you is he wants to silence you. 
That's the reason for the intimidation. Silent. Now, if you'll just be good little boys and girls, if you'll just be good little men and women and go back into your private lives, we don't care what you say to one another in private. We don't care what you whisper in one another's ears. Just don't bring it into the public square. You do that, we'll leave you alone. You don't do that, you're going to suffer. What is Satan's strategy? Silence the truth. What is the kingdom of darkness afraid of? The proclamation of the truth. The disciples have been taught much of what they've learned. They've learned in up-close encounters with Jesus to this point. They've learned from Him as they've walked with Him. How many conversations at night around a campfire? How many conversations in a home? How often have they encountered something? And then the Lord gives them commentary and interpretation and application in one-on-one settings. Now the Lord is saying, what I've taught you privately, you must proclaim publicly. And there's an application of that that carries over to this very morning because we gather into our every faithful congregation. We gather into our meeting places and we learn the Word of God and we learn the truth and the world is perfectly okay most of the time as long as we just stay in our little areas, you see. But don't take that out into the public square, into the streets, into the public domain. No, you're not welcome to say what is true there. But our Lord commands us to speak it, to say it, to proclaim it without shame. It's interesting to me that when the Holy Spirit was given to the church, what really stood out was boldness. This is what they received. They were able to speak the Word of God with boldness. We live in a day in which many people want to recreate the apostolic era. The apostolic era is over. The apostles are not here anymore. It's amazing to me that what they want to do is that they want to see the miracles and all the sign gifts and all the things that took place during the apostolic era. Did you hear the testimonies this morning? Do you not understand you are witnessing the miracle working power of God? The Word of God has been given. It's finished. The era of new revelation is done. That's why the signs are done. The foundation has been laid. The apostles were the foundation. Now we go on with what has been given to us. And while God, what God does is sometimes much quieter, and in many ways it's, it's no less profound. It's amazing what He does. And that's what the devil fears, that we would take the truth by which, through which, God does this miracle-working transformation of lives and sit on it, silence it, don't say it. The apostles were tested on this early on in their ministry. In Acts chapter 4, they were commanded not to preach any more in the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, they're again commanded not to preach any more in the name of Jesus. Both times they have their answer ready. Once you turn there, it's close enough, Acts 4, Acts 5, we can just read it together. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 18. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 18. The Bible says this, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, these are the uh, religious leaders of the Jews. Sometimes the people bothered are not secular authorities. It's the false church. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. In a very strange twist, the persecutors were more afraid of people than God. But the people being persecuted were more afraid of God than people. Afraid in the sense of reverence for God. Acts 5.27, look there. Acts chapter 5, verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You're trying to stir up an insurrection. You're trying to stir up trouble for us. We already told you not to do this. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our Father raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Look at verse 40. This is after Gamaliel cautions the council. Leave them alone. If God is with them, we can't do anything anyway. If he's not with them, it'll go away. Verse 40, and they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What does Satan want to do? Intimidate them? Silence them. What did they remember their Lord had taught them? Don't be afraid. There's a future day of illumination coming. You're standing in the right place. Do you know you're standing in the right place? And as a result, don't be silenced. What I've taught you in private, you proclaim publicly. What you've heard whispered in your ear, you shout it on the top, tops of houses. So this is how our fear is rightly focused. We remember that future day of illumination and we remember our present responsibility for a present kind of illumination to speak God's words all over this world. Now here's my question as we finish this morning. Are you taking these two realities to heart? Are you really remembering these two things? Treating, treating both for what they are, which is they are imperatives, they're commands. 
You're commanded not to be afraid, and you're commanded to proclaim. Because you're going to face this. You know this. I trust everyone I'm talking to, you've already felt this. But you're going to know it in a number of different areas of your life. It may not be too strong to say in every area of your life. What are you going to do when the truth is in conflict with disapproving family members? What are you going to do? Now, there's another sermon for another day to talk about how we do things. Our, our manner, our attitude, our timing, all of that, right? For this to be faithful, it must be in the power of the Spirit of God. And if you're filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will be present. But what I'm talking about right this moment is just the responsibility and the words of our Lord that inform our responsibility. So I'm asking, when, when, when you're going to meet with rejection, disapproval, frowns, distance from family, if you believe and say what is true, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you meet with the threats of a culture that has turned righteousness and sin upside down? Where righteousness is sin, according to this culture. I mean, you believe what the Bible teaches? And you, you have the audacity to say it out loud and you're going to be judged a bigot, a blank phobe, right? There's so many phobes out there. Whatever it is, what motivates you is fear. I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of sin. Are you? I'm afraid of judgment. Are you? Other than that, we ought not to be afraid of anything. Fear the Lord. So, whether in family or in the culture at large, when the subject comes up, biblical roles of men and women, what is a family? How is it supposed to function? How are men different than women? Has God actually made us different from each other? What roles has He assigned to men and women in the family, in the church, in the culture, in society? Will you embrace what the Bible teaches or will you, you know, tamp it down? Don't say it out loud. What about the reality of repentance and forgiveness? We live in a cancel culture right now. Have you noticed that? Where apparently there are some sins that one can commit you can't be forgiven of. I'm not surprised. You should not be surprised. When the world doesn't understand repentance and forgiveness, it hasn't met with repentance and forgiveness. But the church knows repentance and forgiveness. Every genuine believer in this room, there was a time when God broke your heart over your sins and you turned from them to Christ. And God forgave you of all of your sins. So... When a husband and wife have conflict in a family, is forgiveness possible? Is repentance possible? When, when people commit sins that land them rightly so in jail, incarceration, can they be changed? Can they repent and be forgiven? 
in an amazing thing. We're living in a culture that overlooks sin at every turn, yet treats people as if repentance and forgiveness is impossible in certain categories. As usual, it's, you know, it's selective. But there are certain things that, that if you commit that, you're, it's unforgivable. What will the church say about these things? Sexuality and gender. We're all going to deal with it. Sooner or later, you're going to have some family member who has committed the sin of homosexuality, or they're going to be experiencing gender dysphoria. Someone you're going to know and love who's going to claim that God made them a homosexual. I finally embraced who I am. Why can't you just be happy for me? Why can't you celebrate it with me? Why do you talk about that like it's sin? I need you to affirm me. I don't ask you to live my life like I live it, but I need you to affirm this in me. And you're going to be face to face with whether you will really love them or not. Because if you affirm them in what will land them in hell, you do not love them. You do not love them. You love yourself. Because you would rather be applauded and thought of as open-minded and loving and compassionate than to tell your loved one the truth. Will you love yourself or will you love them? Do you know what motivates you not to love them but to love yourself? Fear. Intimidation, which silences you. And again, manner matters. Words matter. Attitudes matter. I'm preaching this forcefully because I want you, a believer, to take into your heart what our Lord is saying here. But when we come face to face with people who are struggling in sin, if we don't long to see them delivered, saved, forgiven, if there's no compassion in our hearts toward them, then we're in sin. So we don't hate them. We love them. We hurt for the demonic deception they're under. And we recognize the only one who ever delivered us from our demonic deception was the king of glory who took us out of the domain of darkness and brought us into the light. So it's with broken hearts, but confidence in the truth that we speak the truth in love. The biblical account of creation, new telescope, wondrous sights in the sky, so that now we can see what happened billions of years ago when there was a big bang. It's amazing, isn't it? This world has no problem believing that everything came out of nothing. Its problem is believing what the Bible tells us about how everything came from nothing, which is God said it, and it was. And it wasn't billions of years ago. It was in a number of years that can be numbered in the thousands. The Bible tells us how it happened. Are you ashamed to say how it happened? Do you not believe how it happened? Will you, will you be intimidated into silence because you'll be thought a fool if you just say how the Bible says it happened? Sexual purity of young people. You, do you understand what an attack is being leveled right now at the sexual innocence of your children? It is all over this world. What will you say? 
what will you say? Is it, is it pie-in-the-sky fanaticism to say that God's design is that no one has a sexual relationship until they get married? And then when you get married, that, th- those are the confines. That marriage relationship, nothing outside it. Do you believe it? Will you teach it to your children? Will you proclaim it? That it's the truth? Or do you just assume that everyone's going to have a sexual relationship before marriage? We need to be you know, teaching them how to manage that and all of that. What do you believe? The author of life is God. Life in the womb is sacred. And it's a human being. It's a child. Do you believe it? Will you say it? The Bible is inerrant. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. The church doesn't grow by pragmatism. It grows by faithfulness. Jesus grows the church. We're simply faithful to the Word of God. Do we believe it? Will we say it? And above all, the chief issue of all is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is there one Savior given to this world? Is there one way to heaven? Is there one way to be reconciled to God? Will we proclaim with joy the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the only way for forgiveness, the only way to eternal life? Or will we be ashamed? So that when we're faced with the disapproval of our family or with the disapproval of our generation, will we remember the future day of illumination is coming? You stand on the right ground. One day God will vindicate it. And do you remember you've been given a command not to take His words and hide them, but to take His words and proclaim them. What He said to His disciples in private was to be proclaimed in public. What you learn in private is to be proclaimed in public. Do you you take that to heart? James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on this text, mentioned William Barclay. A lot of what Barclay believed was just wrong, but he has some valuable historical information many times in his commentaries. And William Barclay... Here's here's Boyce. I'm going to quote Boyce quoting Barclay. Here's what Boyce says. William Barclay tells us about an occasion when Hugh Latimer, one of the most outstanding figures of the English Reformation, was preaching before King Henry VIII. He was about to say something he knew the king would dislike. So he held an audible dialogue with himself in the pulpit. You get it? Preaching before the king, he's about to say something he knows the king will not like. So first he preaches to himself out loud, calling out, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king is here. Then he paused and went on, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. Will you preach that to your own heart? The King of Kings is here. Tonight we'll come back and learn three additional things we must do if our fears to be rightly focused. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you set us free from the fear of man and teach our hearts the fear of God. 
in this day, in this generation, in every realm where we will be challenged with this temptation to be afraid. Let our minds focus on that future day of illumination and the present responsibility that we have for illumination. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.